Scripture reading for today's sermon will be from Amos chapter 2, verse 4, and we'll be reading through chapter 3, verse 2, so we'll make a slight adjustment there. Amos 2, 4 to 3, 2. Hear now God's holy word. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord, and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge and in the house of their God They drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets, and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine, and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press press you down in your place, as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Pray with me today. Our God and our Father, as we come to your holy word, we again come asking that you would be with us. Holy Spirit, would you illuminate the meaning of these words to us? Would you show us with clarity in our minds and convince us in our hearts of the truthfulness, of the veracity, and of the living power of your word? Father, would you continue to use that power in our lives to foster a greater love for you and a greater love for your holiness and righteousness. 
to see and to hate the sin that remains in us, to turn from it, Father, and to continue to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Father, as we are before your word today, give us attentive ears and attentive hearts. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue on in the book of Amos, I'm reminded again that um, the, the verses and the chapter divisions in your Bible were not a part of the original text that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Those were added later, and sometimes it's very evident that they were added not under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because they don't always happen in the, in the right place. And this is, again, one of those cases. Um, I think that the second verse of Amos chapter 3 ought to actually be the 18th verse of Amos chapter 2, and that chapter 3 ought to start where verse 3 is in chapter 3, but that's okay. We're going to take it all in together this morning as we look at God's Word now towards Judah and towards Israel. And as I was studying and reading this chapter this week and praying over this text in my mind in God's Word, it brought to mind a bunch of other passages in the Bible that all speak to a very similar theme that God is proclaiming here. One of them, one of the places that came to my mind was Jesus' words in Luke chapter 12, where He's exhorting His disciples to be ready for the day of His return. Not just preparing them for the fact that He's going to die, but that He's going to one day come again in judgment against the whole world. And they better be ready for that coming day of the Lord. Stay dressed for action, Jesus said to His disciples. Keep your lamps burning, Jesus said to His disciples. You have to be ready because the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect, and you don't want to be caught unaware and unprepared. And Jesus went on in that passage in Luke chapter 12 to explain that being ready for His second coming means living all of life every single day in increasing, growing wisdom and faithfulness to Him. And he warned them, and he he spoke in the words of a parable to warn them that there would be consequences for those servants of his who know the will of the master, but do not live in a way that is ready for the master's return. Who do not live their lives acting according to their master's will, such that when he returns unexpectedly, they're not prepared. And it's in that context that Jesus says these words, which jumped to my mind when I was reading Amos chapter 2. It's in that context of being prepared by living faithfully day by day that Jesus says to His disciples, to us, everyone to whom much was given, of him will much be required. And those are sobering words. God has been speaking words of judgment against the Gentile nations who violated their own conscience. As we saw last week, now here He turns to Judah and Israel and the condemnation rings even much louder because they had been given much and of them much was required and yet they turned against their God. 
Think how much the disciples of Jesus had been given by His coming into this world, living among them, revealing Himself to them, and in Himself revealing all the fullness of God's truth and glory and righteousness to them, calling them in spite of themselves, calling them to be His followers, teaching them and shaping them and redeeming them out of this world by by promising them the eternal hope of glory in Him. They've been given so much. And so of them, much was required, much trust, much love, much faithfulness, much obedience, much self-sacrificial service to the one who had given them so much by suffering and sacrificing so much for them. And so that's what it meant for them, for us, as his redeemed followers to whom much has been given. That's what it means to be ready for his coming to stay dressed for action, to keep the lamps burning. It means to live more and more and more in light of how much we have received from our God in more and more growing faithfulness and and cross-bearing obedience, more and more like Him who has given us so much and, and living less and less like the world out of which He saved us and like the lives that we used to live before He redeemed us from our sins. Everyone to whom much was given of Him will much be required. That's how it works, right? The more we've received, the more is expected of us. That's how it works in this world that God has made. And whenever someone who has received much falls short of the expectation of what's required of them, it's because they're ungrateful for what they've received. It's because they don't realize how little they deserve what they've been given in the first place. Or maybe they thought too little of what they've been given to them. Or maybe they've thought too much of themselves. And so they're not grateful for what they've received because they feel entitled to it. And maybe even they feel like they haven't been given enough and they should have more. There's all kinds of sin that lies at the heart of a life that doesn't measure up to the standard of what they've been given. And this is now God's complaint. This is now God's indictment against Israel here in Amos chapter 2. Again, we saw last week in detail, painful detail, how God set His sights, God set His divine justice against the Gentile nations. And by speaking against those six nations that he identified there in chapter 1, he's speaking against the whole world. He's speaking against all mankind made in the image of God, in whose hearts, in whose consciences at the least, the law of God has been inscribed. The law of God has been written. That's true, the Bible teaches us, of every single human being. Even if they've never read the Bible. Even if they've never read everything that God reveals in His Holy Word, God has written His law on the hearts of every single human being in the world that's made in His image, Paul says in Romans chapter 2. And he says in Romans 1, God has revealed in the created order His divine nature, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, as the God who He is, so that no human being, whether they've read the Bible or not, has any excuse for dishonoring God and living in sin instead of in holiness. 
And so that's how God was speaking to the nations. You violated your conscience. You've ignored everything that you know to be true in your hearts and from my revelation of myself around you. And we saw last time how after having been divinely patient with the Gentile nations, God had, after three sins and after four, come now to pass judgment on them for these increasingly grievous sins and crimes and injustices against humanity and against the God who made all human beings in His image. But now, now see, as serious as God's displeasure was with the pagan nations and as deserving as they were of His holy wrath, now He speaks with even greater displeasure towards His own people, towards Judah and towards Israel, because they had been given so much by God that the Gentile nations hadn't received. They didn't just have the law of God written on their consciences, and they didn't just have access to the revelation of God's power and and nature and attributes in in the created order. They had that and they had so much more than that also. They had been chosen by God from among every other nation and lavished with even more divine revelation from God through the prophets, through the scriptures. And they'd been lavished with God's unique kindness and mercy and faithfulness to them, even though they didn't deserve it. They had been given so much. And so of them much was required. And yet they fell far short of honoring God in their lives. And so, where his words to the nations in chapter 1 last week bear special relevance to all of the nations and all of the peoples of the world, His words to His nation, His words to Israel in chapter 2 this week, bear special relevance to all of us who have been given much, who have received such profound outpourings of God's mercy and grace. And so we need to pay attention and hear these words of God today. This section of Scripture is made up of two oracles, two divine addresses that God gives. One to Judah, the southern kingdom of His Old Testament people, and then one to the people in the north, Israel. And these two messages are interrelated to one another. So that in the end of this section, which is verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3, when God, having spoken against them, made a case against them, when He speaks His judgment towards them, He's speaking to all of them collectively. We'll see that in chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2. He's speaking to all of His people that He brought up out of Egypt, not just the northern or the southern kingdom. He uses the word Israel to speak of all of those who have been called as His people. So two oracles, two messages, one to Judah, one to Israel, and the structure works like this. The words that God speaks to Judah reveal an underlying principle of sinfulness in their hearts against God. And then the words that he speaks to Israel reveal how that principle of sinfulness was played out in practice. And I'll spell them out here before we jump in to see them so it's easier to follow. The principle that God is focusing on in these these passages, these oracles here, through His words to Judah, is that they have despised God's truth. 
That's what's at the heart of the matter here. They've despised his word. They've despised his law. They've despised his revelation to them. And the outworking of that, despising of his truth, according to God's words against Israel in the north, is that they have lived their lives in contradiction to his great love towards them, which was at the core of what was revealed to them. By neglecting God's truth, they've ended up contradicting his his saving grace towards them in all kinds of ways. That's the paradigm that God is laying out here. And so it should be easy for us to see how relevant this passage is to us who have been saved by his grace, who have been given so much. We must not despise his truth and we must live according to his redeeming grace and love and work in our lives because to whom much is given of him is much required. So look with me. Here at verse 4 of Amos chapter 2. For three transgressions of Judah and for four, God says, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord. And the law doesn't just mean the Ten Commandments. It means everything that the Lord has written. It's a reference to His will, it's a reference to His revelation, it's a reference to His Scripture, and He says they have not kept His statutes, which is a word in Hebrew that has the root meaning of something being inscribed, like the law was inscribed on those stone tablets that were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And God is saying here, Though I've revealed my word to you, it's not been inscribed on your heart. You haven't lived as if my word is indelibly written upon you as the uttermost guide and authority of your lives. But instead, their lies have led them astray. Those lies after which their fathers walked. So there's the underlying principle, see, that God is exposing here. His people to whom he'd drawn near and revealed himself and given his word and his law to, they've despised his revelation to them. They've despised his truth. And this is where all of the spiritual decay comes from. This is where it always all starts in the household of God. This is always Satan's primary strategy. You can cause every kind of problem under the sun. You can bring every kind of sin about by undermining the truth of God's Word in the minds of God's people and in their hearts. Satan knows that's how every other wicked objective that he has can be accomplished by first undermining the truth of the Word of God. Again, God is starting here by focusing on Judah in the south, but it's not like Israel in the north wasn't every bit as guilty of the same thing. Verse 12 highlights how the prophets who spoke the Word of God in Israel were actively suppressed in Israel. They were silenced. You shall not prophesy. They were told by the kings and by the people of Israel. And so everywhere among God's people to whom the richness of His Word was being revealed, they were ignoring it. They were suppressing it. They were despising it. 
Now here in verse 4, God highlights some important contrasts in order to help us understand the massive significance of His Word. Why is it so important that we not suppress God's Word? Well, look at the contrast that He spells out just in this one verse here. The first one is this, it's the contrast between that which is divine and that which is human. Amos talks about the law of the Lord versus the lies after which their fathers walked. The pure wisdom of God versus the counterfeit false wisdom of men and of the world. There's a qualitative difference between that which God says and that which man says, obviously. So the bottom line in Judah was that even though God had spoken to them, even though God Himself had revealed His infallible Word to them, they preferred the words of men. They preferred the traditions of men to God's law and to God's Word and to God's truth. And I hope that the double-edged sword of God's Word can expose the residues of that same sin that remains in every one of our hearts today. Are there not ways in which we tend to prefer some other wisdom to God's wisdom at certain times and in certain places in our lives. I love this part of God's Word, but when He says this, I don't want to pay much attention to that, and I'd rather listen to this tradition from the world or live my life according to this wisdom of men. In this world, there's always going to be competing voices that are crying out, this is the way, walk in this way. There always have been. There always will be. Where do we find truth? How can truth be known? Everyone needs to know. Everyone wants to know the answer to questions like that, right? How can truth be known? And there's all kinds of answers. And all of them are ultimately wrong, and only one of them is ultimately right. Obviously, human speculation is no safe guide to discovering actual truth. The history of philosophy proves that, right? Men have been speculating about the nature of truth for millennia. And there's all kinds of different competing, very often contradictory theories out there. So speculation doesn't work because it'll land you in any one of those competing theories, and they're all different. Even scientific empirical observation and experimentation can only get you so far in understanding the nature of truth, even in the observable, physical world. There's plenty that the best efforts of science still can't explain. There's plenty that's got to be theorized. There's plenty that's got to be assumed. There's plenty that still can't be proven by the standards of the scientific method. Antiquity is no safe guide for finding ultimate truth because we keep on learning how much we still have to learn. And so often, the opposite's also true, especially morally and ethically, when what one generation used to say is wrong becomes what the next generation embraces as what's right. And we see that happening in all kinds of ways in our, in our, in our progressive society, right? One commentator named E.B. Pusey said, 
The popular error of one generation becomes the axiom of the next, as the children canonize the errors of their fathers. So human authority is no safe guide in the quest for ultimate truth, either because human nature all but guarantees the rejection of truths that were once long held. History demonstrates that pretty clearly. And all the while, the only sure and safe guide to truth itself, God's Word, is increasingly distorted, diluted, perverted, spurned, shunned, outright rejected. The Word of God, which He Himself has spoken. And so it's this contrast between divine wisdom and human wisdom that God is highlighting here in order to indict Judah for preferring human wisdom over the divine. I've spoken, and yet you'd rather listen to these unsafe guides in the world around you. And then he also contrasts, just there in verse 4, how his law stands in contrast to lies. They've rejected the law of the Lord, but their lies have led them astray. And he doesn't mean that anything that's not in the Word of God is necessarily lies. If it's it's not in the Bible, it's fundamentally false. That's not what God means. There's some things that are out there in the world that are true that God didn't reveal in His Word. What he's emphasizing is this, that whenever anything other than the Word of God is given the supreme place of authority in our minds and in our lives, so that whatever it is, philosophy or psychology or physical science or or, or even cultural norms out there and traditions, if those have a greater place of authority in our minds and lives, and if we base our lives more on those things so that they are the primary ways that we guide our lives instead of by God's Word, then, then those things, for whatever truth can be found in them, and some truth can be found in them, But if they're given the supreme place of authority in our lives, then they become lies because they're given a place that doesn't belong to them. And then they become the source of all kinds of lies that lead us astray. And that's how Satan works. Well, look, this is true. There's a little bit of truth in this, so let's go with that instead of God's Word, and then he can fill it with all kinds of lies. And and since you're following this path instead of God's path you will surely go astray. But to the contrary, the truth of God revealed in His Word is the only infallible, is the only inerrant, is the only ultimately authoritative source of truth because God spoke it. And so when we give the Word of God that place of supreme authority that only belongs to it, then what it does is it protects us. And it safeguards us from lies. It's the only sure guide. In Amos' day, it was only when people strayed from the truth of God's word and preferred human traditions instead that they started wandering off path and into lies that were destructive. And of course, it's no different in our day. It's because we've gotten so far away from the word of God that we've wandered so much into lies. And the church in this day and age is guilty, brothers and sisters, 
of distorting, of perverting, of diluting, of abandoning the purity of what God's Word says, of paying allegiance instead to some other authority, some other system of thought, some other system of values in the world, and then saying, because that is my supreme authority, I will look for ways to reinterpret God's word in light of that. And that's what's happening. And that's why we wander. And that brings the judgment of God. This is why God speaks with such absolute urgency about the importance both of safeguarding His truth and of being safeguarded by His truth. They go hand in hand, right? Paul exhorts Timothy to follow the pattern of sound words, 2 Timothy 1.13, to guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. He means the Word of God. Paul exhorts Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, 2, to entrust God's word to faithful men. Jude appeals to us to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, that's contained in God's word, that's revealed in God's word. Right? That's what the Bible needs. We've got to protect it. We've got to preserve it. We've got to safeguard it. We've got to continue to proclaim it. Because if we safeguard the Word of God against errors and distortions and delusions and false teachings of all kind, that's when the Word of God, when it's preserved, when it's guarded, that's when it preserves and guards us against wandering astray into lies. So see, this is what Jesus meant when He said to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, if you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples. Abide means to remain, to stay, to live there, to dwell there permanently. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth then if you abide in my word. And the truth will give you freedom then if you abide in my word. And the Pharisees said back to him, well, hey, look, we're we're Abraham's offspring. We're already free. And Jesus said, no, you're not. You're slaves to sin. Proven by the fact that you want to kill me, Jesus said to the Pharisees. And the reason you want to kill me is because my word is not found any place in you. You're not abiding in my word. You're being guided by some other authority. By your own wisdom, by your own sinful desires. They'd rejected the word of God and so they'd rejected God incarnate himself. And become enslaved to sin. But abide in the Word. Safeguard the Word and it will safeguard you and free you from the bonds of sin in your life. And and there's no other way than that. And so in this oracle to Judah where God is condemning them for despising His Word, the ultimate contrast that's at stake is between the rejection of God's truth and the cultivation of it in the lives of His people. It's one or the other. There's no middle ground, right? Because we're talking about God's truth here, the Word of God, the truth that God speaks and reveals. We're either esteeming God's Word as the Word of God, as the ultimate standard of truth in our lives, the only infallible standard of truth, the standard that we measure all other claims of truth by, 
We're either, we're either esteeming it like that and cultivating lives that are shaped and governed and guided by the ultimate supreme standard of the living Word of God, or we're actually rejecting it. There's no middle ground. We might say, well, sure there is, because, you know, I believe some of it. I believe lots of it. I let a lot of it influence me and impact the way that I live my life. But the reality is, because it's God's Word, unless it is our supreme authority and guide in all of life, then in reality what we're, what we're doing is, is rejecting God's Word in the same way that we ultimately reject God Himself unless we bow before Him in all of life as the sovereign Almighty Lord who He is. You can't just say, I choose, because then you're the Lord. You can't just say, I'll bow before God in these areas, but not in these areas, because then ultimately you're putting yourself in a higher position of authority than Him. You're the ultimate authority then. And so it is with His Word. His Word is ultimate and inerrant and infallible and authoritative truth, and we either abide in its ultimate authority or we don't. And as soon as we start cherry-picking the parts that we don't that we like and, and, and reinterpreting and rejecting the parts we don't like, then we're making ourselves and our minds, our preferences, our desires to be more final as authoritative guides for our lives than God's Word. No middle ground. You're either cultivating a growing, abiding submissiveness to the life-governing authority of God's Word or you're rejecting it, you're despising it as the final authority that it is. And whenever human beings do that, they're preferring lies to truth. And in Judah, who had been given much, in the revelation of God's word, this is what brought the judgment of God upon them in verse 5, which speaks for itself. I will send fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds. Of Jerusalem, and we know historically how that was fulfilled. In verse 6, he turns the focus on Israel in the north, who again, they're also guilty of despising God's word. And here, God lays out how that principle of despising his word translated into the practice of their lives. Here's what happens when you do it. Verses 6 through 8, look at where the lies took them. Look at where living according to their own authority took them. Look at where cherry-picking and saying, well, I like these parts of God's Word, but I don't want to listen to these prophets. Look where that got them. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment because here's what they do in despising my Word. They sell the righteous for silver, slavery, and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust, all of the injustice of the nations, and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. Every kind of immorality, greed, they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. We'll talk about that in a minute. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Here God is exposing the collapse of life, individual personal lives, and also the collapse of the life of the whole society 
which is what takes place when the authority of God's word is despised. That's why, people, that's why the collapse of our society is taking place today and will continue unless and until we figure out that the source of final authority is God's word and we stop despising it as a nation, which is, which is it begins in the house of God. And the most popular voices of the church today in the nation are those that also despise and twist and distort and pervert the word of God. You know who Paul Washer is? He's a very fiery contemporary preacher and evangelist, and he was preaching about sin and repentance one day. He was decrying all kinds of wickedness in the world, in the nation, in our society, and everyone in the audience was, was applauding and amening. And Paul Washer stops and goes, I don't know why you're all clapping, I'm talking about you. <laughs> I want you to repent, he says. See, this is how this is what's going on in Amos also, right? Amos has been thundering away all throughout chapter 1 about the wickedness and injustices of the world, of the, of the nations out there. We saw that all last week. And, as, and he's kind of like up on a, up on a milk crate just, just proclaiming the Word of God against the Edomites and the Amorites and the Philistines. And all along, Israel and Judah and all the people of God have been going, "Uh uh-huh, that's right, brother, amen, you preach it. And he stops and he goes, I'm talking about you, Judah. I'm talking about you, Israel. And, And in a very real sense, he's especially talking about them because to whom much is given, of them much more is required. God had come near to them as His chosen people, revealed Himself to them, His law, His will, His holiness, His truth. He'd pointed them to a whole new kind of life that was different than the world. This is how I've designed humans to live in holiness and justice and mercy and faithfulness, utterly unlike the ways of the Gentile nations. But they they said, we'd rather live like them. It's more fun. So now to Israel, God says that not only did He reveal Himself and His will and His holiness in this life that He was calling them to live, He didn't just make it all known, He also is the one who did everything for them, which would make this life of holiness and justice and godliness and righteousness possible. And yet they still rejected it. He chose them. He loved them. He delivered them. He saved them. And so despising His truth and rejecting His word, they were also living in contradiction to His love and His salvation and His grace and His redemption. Verses 6 and 7, He talks about how they sold the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. And how they trampled the poor into the dust and had zero compassion for the afflicted. They were no different, even though he had done so much, given so much to them. They were no different than the pagan nations. They, too, treated image-bearing people like things, even as we saw last week. They, too, prioritized money 
and profit over the value of human life and human dignity, just like we saw last week. How much worse was it for the people of God who had the word of God and who had been loved by God to be guilty of these same sins as the Philistines and the Phoenicians and the Edomites and the Amorites and the Moabites. I'm talking about you, God says. His people have been every bit as guilty of of injustice against other human beings as, as the pagans had been. And then there at the end of verse 7, God highlights the blatant immorality, sexual immorality that was festering in Israel every bit as much as it was festering in the heathen nations. The heathens violated their God-given consciences in their perverse lusts. Well, the Israelites even took it a full step further and also violated the clear, unambiguous Word of God, which expressly forbids the very things that they were doing. They sinned not only against conscience, but against divine revelation. They stared the Word of God in the face and said, Nah, thus far God, but no further will I go in following you. They exchanged the truth of the absolute authority of God's Word for the lie of living for the sake of their own fleshly desires. They allowed sexual gratification to replace the holy name of God as the guiding principle of their lives. Who will I honor? Who will I please? God who is holy or myself? Uh, Christians, make no mistake, the church of God in the world today is up to its eyeballs in this same kind of rottenness and sin of despising God's word and answering to the depraved desires of human sinfulness and profaning the holy name of God by twisting and perverting his word to give hearty approval to whatever the world wants and to justify every kind of wickedness and debauchery that's out there. And be careful because... The culture of that rottenness in the church can be infectious so that even if some Christians would never go so far as to do what's being perpetrated in some churches today, they do let themselves become influenced by this impulse to draw the lines for themselves. All decide what I want God's word to govern in my life instead of being wholly submitted to the absolute life-governing authority of God's Word in every area of life. In Amos' day, divine revelation was made to bow to the demands of self-centeredness. That was the source, and the result was all of this gross injustice and immorality that God's calling out here. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Timothy 4. New Testament, speaking to the church, he says, for this is the will of God. And that's all that matters, right? It doesn't matter what you want. It doesn't matter what you desire. It doesn't matter what I feel like. 
What matters is what does God want? What is His will? This is the will of God. And if you're going to circumscribe your life by something, it's got to be that, wholly and completely, as He reveals it in His Word. And what is it? Well, this is it. Your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. This is God's will, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you about. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God himself who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So there's the connection, see? All throughout God's word. To disregard God's word, to disregard God's call for purity that he reveals in his word, is to disregard God himself and his Holy Spirit, the living word of his revelation. So it's not enough even, see, just to abstain from immorality. We've got to cultivate this devotion to God. This devotion to His Word and submission to His Word is the abiding, governing discipline of our lives. Ultimately here, look at verse 8. God drills down into the motives of their hearts and shows how they haven't just sinned against their fellow man, which they have, and they haven't even just sinned against the divine revelation of God's Holy Word, which they have. Ultimately, God is saying they've sinned against the reality of His grace, of His love, of His goodness. This is what verse 8 means. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who had been fined. What's the altar and where is it? The altar is in the house of God. That's the place where God's great mercy was put on graphic display, right? God Himself dwelling in the midst of sinful people in spite of their sin and defilement, He's able to do that because of the atonement that He graciously makes on their behalf on the altar. Sacrifices offered to Him in order to atone for their sin and make the the reality of His presence with them safe. But here they came to that altar, to that place of the mercy of God towards them, lounging before that altar on garments taken in pledge. Here's what that means. You know how if you go to a restaurant and order food and you forget maybe to bring your wallet in from the car? You can like leave something valuable on the table while you go out the car to get your wallet or go to the ATM machine to get some cash? kind of as a pledge. Maybe you, maybe you put your iPhone on the table as a, as a pledge that I'll be right back and make good on what I owe you, right? Well, that's what garments of pledge are here. If you owed something to someone, you could, you could give your coat to them during the day as a pledge of your word to pay what you owe eventually. But the law of God clearly spelled out in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, 
The law of God in manifestation of the great kindness and mercy of God. The law required in Exodus 22 that if someone gives you their coat as a pledge during the day and they still aren't able to pay you back by the time the sun goes down, you've got to give them their coat back because it's cold at night. And you've got to care more about their need of the coat than your need of repayment, God's law says, based on mercy. But in Israel, people broke that law all the time. And they kept the garments of pledge in their greed and lack of compassion. And they brought those garments of pledge to the temple to use as blankets to lounge on before the altar. Because their comfort mattered more than other people's needs. So the message of the altar itself, the message of mercy that the altar proclaims as the place where God makes atonement for sin, that was entirely lost on them. And Amos Amos is watching this go on and he sees the hypocrisy in it. Their sin was a violation of God's inherent grace and mercy and love and compassion which they had been lavished with themselves. They who had been loved by God were in their own lives and hearts devoid of love for one another. They had been given such grace and mercy and yet they had none to give to anyone else which meant that their coming to the altar was absolutely meaningless, right? Their worship, whatever words fell off their lips, it was all just just vanity and hypocrisy. Jesus ends up condemning it in the temple, doesn't he? That's why he calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers, a bunch of whitewashed. It looks good on the outside. It sounds good, but it's rotten on the inside. There's no mercy in you. You're full of greed. You're full of hypocrisy. That's why Jesus comes into the temple where they're supposed to be worshiping Him with Paschal lambs, but they're just bilking the people. And He overthrows all the tables of all the money changers who are driven by greed and not by love. Same thing here. Nothing new under the sun. This becomes God's emphasis in verses 9 through 11, as he just goes on this running chronicle of the great, merciful, redeeming things that he's done for them. And yet, this is how you live, God says. Right? He destroyed the Amorites before. They couldn't do that. The Amorites were way bigger than you, way stronger than you, and yet I defeated them before you because I love you. I brought you up out of Egypt because I love you. I brought you out of 400 years of slavery. I brought you into the wilderness where I, 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 I made manna come down out of heaven and water come out of a rock. I gave you the promised land. I gave you prophets and spoke my word to you. I revealed myself to you. I sanctified you. That's what Nazarites are, people who are set apart for, for special devotion to God, consecrated unto himself. I lavished you with every good thing God is saying in these verses. And yet they despised his word. They rejected him. They preferred the things of the world. 
They follow the desires of their own sinful hearts instead. And so none of His mercy, none of His kindness, none of His grace, none of His salvation was, was reflected in them through devotion to Him or through love towards one another. And so to this people particularly, to His people, chosen for no other reason than His sheer sovereign grace, right? They hadn't done something where God looked down and said, now those, that's a good bunch there, right? Through no other reason than His sovereign grace, He chose them, gave them so much, more than any other people in the world, to these people that He says in verse 2 of chapter 3, you only have I made known of all the families of the earth. To these, he says, therefore will I punish you for all your iniquities. And here's where I want you to see two things in the punishment of God as we close. In verses 13 through 16, God rattles off this series of graphic pictures of the judgments that are going to come against his people. But in that, he is speaking to them with a voice of love. That's why I called the sermon the discipline of love. He's not just saying, I'm going to destroy you. He's calling them by the voice of his merciful, loving nature to turn back to him in repentance, to embrace holiness, to abandon all of this sin, to become like him, holy, gracious, merciful, compassionate, loving people. So God says he's going to crush them under the weight of his divine justice. In verse 13, God says he's going to wither them. In the rest of those verses, 14, 15, 16, it comes down to this. He's going to wither them by the strength of his might against them. That doesn't sound good, and it's not good. That's what he, I'm going I'm to crush you down and I'm going to fight against you with such divine power that you're just going to run out of gas real fast and not be able to do anything to withstand my might. In order to show them what? Look at verses 15 and 16. He who handles the bow, the mighty warriors in Israel, who think that they're so strong, who live according to their own will, who are, who are the captains of their own ship, an authority unto themselves, when God faces them, he who handles the bow shall not stand. And he who is swift of foot shall not save himself. Nor shall he who rides the horse save his own life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day. My read is this, that, that God is judging them and humiliating them and breaking them in order to show them ultimately that they can't save themselves. So they must turn back, see, to the one who has saved them in the past, who had loved them, who had chosen them, who had delivered them, who had given them so much. In verse 1 of chapter 3, God speaks in vengeance against wayward Israel. Again, now the whole company of his people brought up out of Egypt, all of them. But listen closely. Hear this 
word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family, he calls them, that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. And then again there in verse 2, you only have I known of all the families of this earth. They were his family, see? They were his people. This is Israel. This is the people that God elected. This is the people that God adopted. This is the people that God took as his own. And so there is this sense of to whom much has been given, of him much will be required, of God's voice of justice saying to them, of all people, you deserve my judgment. But there is also, because remember, God is unchanging, always unchangeably all that he is, always justice, always mercy, there is also in these same words the pleading mercy of God calling out to his own, to his adopted children, to his family, to his beloved, calling them to look hard on his mercies and all of the grace that he had given to them and to recognize how much better his love is, how much better his grace is, how much better his word is, how much better his truth is, how much better he is than anything else that their hearts could ever desire in this world. So there's discipline here in the word of God to his sinful people to be sure. And there is a thoroughgoing reminder and a fresh revelation of His love, of His mercy, of His kindness, which is meant to lead them to repentance, right? Didn't Paul say that very thing in Romans chapter 2? Talking about sin and talking about judgment, warning about judging against other people hypocritically when we have sin in our own lives. Warning about condemning others for sin while harboring sin in our own lives. And didn't Paul say there in Romans 2 that when we do that, when we, when we judge others hypocritically and ungraciously, that we're inviting God's judgment on ourselves because we're presuming on the richness of His kindness to us. Which kindness of God should be leading us to repentance and growing holiness including godly mercy and love towards one another, right? The great kindness of holy God who has given us so much by choosing us, by electing us, by adopting us, by the gift of the sacrifice of the life of His only begotten Son for us. All of that ought to be leading us further and further and further into repentance and holiness and sanctification and the living of this life that He has created in us by saving us and uniting us to Christ and revealing Himself to us and giving us everything that pertains to life and godliness. He's done it all just like He had for them. He's given it all freely in Christ Jesus. And it's all revealed. It's all made clear in His living, active Word. Which is why we must abide in His living, active Word word so that we will know the freedom from sin and the freedom of growing holiness and assurance and confidence that our lives are pleasing to God are you abiding in his word are you constantly irrigating your heart with his word marinating your mind in his word 
so that, so that your thoughts, so that your feelings even, your desires can be richly seasoned with the grace and love of God towards you. Constantly going back to His Word to see how much He's given you so that you'll know that much is required of you, but also so that you'll know how good He is to you and that His kindness will lead you towards repentance. Let's pray to our gracious Father today that He will do this, convicting us of sin, but also convincing us of His love and causing us to run with endurance and persevere to the end. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You pull no punches in Your Word. We thank You that You expose the very heart of human sinfulness in ways that are deeply uncomfortable for us, but also that show us how deeply gracious and merciful and loving You are towards us. And so, Father, may we see the depth and the breadth and the height of Your love. May we understand all its fullness by looking upon Jesus Christ, who came and bled and died in our place to reconcile us to You and to save us and redeem us by Your grace. And Father, may Your kindness lead us day by day by day to repentance and to greater heights of holiness for the sake of Your pleasure and glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.